We are in Revelation chapter 2, and we are going to be getting into the churches today. Um, the churches really start where the meat is, you're going to start chewing on the meat. We have been introduced to Jesus, we have saw him, uh, God basically, a description of him, because we needed to know who's going to be standing among these churches, who is the one coming, it's just setting us up for all of these churches in essence. And so I revealed before that there was a chiastic structure throughout Revelation, and it's everywhere. Even just here in chapter 2 alone, we can see in verses 1 through 7, and I had more, but I didn't want to bore you with all the chiastic structure of it, but I just wanted to give you a sample of it here. So in Revelation 2.1, it says, To the angel of the assembly of Ephesus, write, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says these things. So we see it's identifying this person from he who, he who. And when you go to verse 7, then we're going to say, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So it's almost like identifying who is saying these things. Well, now we're seeing it's the Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, we see a commendation. I know your works. In Revelation 2, 6, you're going to see a commendation. I know your works. And then this is going to repeat. Then we see in Revelation 2, 4, but I have this against you. Okay, that you've left, left your first love. In verse two, or chapter 2, verse 5, it's going to say, do the first works. Remember what you used to do. So there's just these patterns that are all over. And so that's just an example in verses 1 through 7. Like I said, I'm not going to talk about that any more than that outside of just to, to be mindful of these patterns that are there. This is too organized to just be a man-made thing. This is definitely an inspired word. Now, giving you a little rundown before we get into the verses, what we're seeing here, I'm not saying that this is the interpretation. I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but this is the interpretation that I like, and I think it's going to fit. I think it fits well. We last week got to see that it kind of ended out basically saying in verse 19 of chapter 1, write therefore what you have seen. Well, John saw this vision, but then it says, what is now? I believe these are the churches that we're going to be talking about and what will take place later, meaning after the churches. But I think there's kind of a dual aspect. Remember, I've talked about dual prophecies all the time, that a Jewish way of thinking is not, here's a prophecy and it's done. It's here's a prophecy and you have many fulfillments up leading up to the final, ultimate fulfillment of it. So you could almost read that, Read what is now, the thing that he saw, this vision of God, what will take place, okay, and then it said, and what, I'm sorry, what is now and what will take place. If you kind of combine those together, what is now and what will take place, you can almost make it say that these churches are now, but they're also a picture of what will take place. Does that make sense? That it doesn't have to be boom, 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 but that it is literally the churches that are there now, but they are also representative of what will take place 
prophetically throughout history. And so I think that these are real churches, but prophetically are speaking of rough time periods here of 33 AD to 100 AD for the first church, and then 100 to 300 for Smyrna and so on, leading up to Laodicea, which brings us up to the present time. Now again, I will not be dogmatic on this, but I also, as I introduced to you last week, there's a pattern that we will see in the churches and the seals and the trumpets and in the vials and in all of history of four, two, one. This pattern, the first four follow a theme. You will see these first four are gonna lead you up to the Reformation and then it switches and we have the Reformation period, an outreach evangelistic time period and then the last one is gonna be completely different. And there's a commercial break between the sixth and the seventh. All of them are going to have that. So here we have the first four that will follow a main theme. And I will talk more about this as we go, but just so that you can see it together, because sometimes when we do little pieces at a time, it's easy to lose the big picture. And so Ephesus would be the apostolic age. These apostles that right after Jesus ascended into heaven, they are hot on the heels of, of knowing Jesus, walking with him, it's fresh. Much like we experience in any big event in our life, whether it be a wedding or a funeral, a, a birth of our child, you'll remember it, but boy, there's a time, I know at least for funerals especially, when, when my parents died, it's like the world stops. It's like all of a sudden, nothing matters. All the stuff that we try to gather means absolutely nothing. It's like, why do I even have this stuff? And then three, more, three months, six months later, it's like, you know, I'd like to buy this. I'd really, you know, it just fades away. And this is kind of what's happening is he's going to warn them to... Hold on. Remember your first love. Don't forget. Don't lose that. And that's what you're going to be seeing. Um, I'm not going to go through all the details because we will when we get to that church, but you can kind of see the same patterns. There's going to be a title to the church of Ephesus from the one who holds seven stars and walks among the lampstands. We've already identified what those things are. The seven stars, the angels of the churches, the lampstand uh, are the churches. And now he's saying he walks among those lampstands. So kind of important stuff there. We also see uh, Smyrna then is going to be persecuted church. Now, persecution is what we actually see in Ro uh, Acts chapter 8 is persecution began shortly after the ascension. The, it talks about in chapter 8 that there was a persecution that went on and all but the disciples left Jerusalem. So uh, I won't get into that right now as far as why that was, but it's kind of natural, the progression that we're going to see. And so persecution begins, and we're going to see Smyrna as a persecuted church. Then after that, we see the church of Pergamum, and Pergamum is going to start mixing state and church through this time period. Constantine is coming about. And we get a mixture of the pagan and the Christian. 
we see that the doctrines that were being held to are now starting to kind of fall away and, and get compromised. You know, it amazes me how much we go to our church fathers for what truth is. And I think we have to be very careful about that because it didn't take long. We see the church was very screwed up within 100 years of, the, of Jesus leaving. We don't get our doctrines and we don't get our way of life from studying church fathers. I'm not saying that they didn't have some good things. They did, absolutely. But what I'm saying is that's not where you're going to get your good doctrine. You're going to get it from God's word, not from the church fathers. You're going to get it from Jesus, studying him. Now, I know the church fathers tried to do that, but we also see there was a culture, and we've talked about this in earlier studies, there was an anti-Semitic attitude that affected the way they, it was a worldview that affected the way they interpreted the scripture. And so when we go to find church doctrine, you can't go to the Council of Laodicea or the Council of Trent or any of these other councils or say, you know, Christostom or Justin the Martyr, the Bible. And we need to remember that because there was a mixture that happened here, especially with so much of what Christianity comes from uh, in the 300s. And it had become very corrupt, as you will see. Thyatira, we're going to see the beginning, really, of the Catholic Church. After the, the mixture came, we're going to see a strengthening of the ungodly. And we'll talk about that in greater details. But what you're going to see is that every single one of these descriptions of God is going to fit the attitude or the problem within the church. And so keep that in mind. The next three, like I said, the Catholic Church gets so corrupt. After we start this mixture, it gets very corrupt. And then it changes theme a little bit. And you're going to see that in the church of Sardis that there's going to be a change in an open door that's going to be opened for, I think it's going to talk about evangelism, the Reformation period. And then in Philadelphia, we see kind of further spreading of the gospel all the way up to Laodicea when people then start falling asleep again and it becomes lukewarm. And he says, I wish you were either hot or cold. But you can see that this is... Of the, the patterns of 4-2-1, this is the most difficult to see, but I don't think it's that difficult. But it isn't as clear as some of the others. So, with that said, let's get started in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Okay, okay. The one who walks in the seven golden lampstands, that was a description that we saw of God from chapter 1, verse 16. Each church is going to get one of those aspects of it. Now, we already showed you kind of that he's going in a route, kind of a natural circle of churches, of these seven churches. And this was also a Roman postal route because it was just kind of a natural way of going. And so uh, they would normally go here to deliver messages and whatnot and do a loop and return back. So nothing you know, out of the ordinary too much as far as that order, I don't think. It's pretty natural. But when we look at the attitude of these churches, there's some prophetic meaning to it, as I 
said here. But these things says he who holds the seven stars, remember those are the angels of the churches. But he walks in the midst of these lampstands. He's reminding you, he's reminding them, don't forget, I'm with you. I, I'm walking among the churches. And there can be no question who it is because we already have identified this person in chapter 1. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So it's interesting that we're seeing more of an apostolic era, that the apostles are there. He's saying there are people calling themselves apostles. And I know your works, your labor, your patience. These people are doing something. I don't know if you could really say that about the modern church today. I know your works, your labor, your patience. I think maybe in some cases, yeah, we're, we're supporting missionaries here, but as a whole, the body of Christ, the members, each member of the church, we have a tendency to just say, well, it's easier to pull out our checkbook. Let them do it. I'm going to go live my life. These people aren't doing that. They're living it. I want to give you some background on Ephesus here, because Ephesus was a very rich town, and there was the temple of what we call Dirty Diana there, the temple of Diana. They believed that this big, huge statue of Diana that was there actually had fallen from the sky and landed there, and they worshipped it. There are a lot of things that are going on here at Ephesus that we can see throughout Scripture. I'll mention a few of them here in a minute. But one of them in Acts chapter 19, we see when Paul goes there that they bring out their sorcery books and they pile them up and they burn them. It says in Scripture that it was worth about 50,000 drachmas. That's over a day's wage. So to put that in perspective, that would be about $15 million worth of books. So there was a revival going on. There was some labor and works and ministry going on in the town of Ephesus. This was a corrupt, disgusting place. We've been to Ephesus, uh, and on the streets, there are engravings that would guide you to the temple prostitutes, and you would see different type of sexual poses of where you could get different types of things. They have a library at Ephesus. It wasn't a library. It, well, it was in part but you went behind it and there was a brothel so that men could say, I'm going to the library. There were over, at any given time, they say a thousand different temple prostitutes there at Ephesus. So you think it's bad in Hastings right now? It can get worse. Okay, we've got one little strip joint that, you know, it can get worse if we don't labor, if we don't stand for, for truth. 
but it had become so corrupt that the church had a pretty big job here. It was the largest, one of the largest cities of Asia at this time. And so the Temple of Diana is actually one of the seven wonders of the world. So it's put up there with the hanging gardens of Babylon, you know, the pyramids, things like that. So that ought to tell you a little bit about it. We also see in Scripture that Paul, they were going to drag him in and stone him. There was this huge riot going on. And everybody, there was this metal worker there who said, these guys are telling us that there's only one God and we shouldn't serve these idols, basically. So they're going to ruin our trade. And so money was driving it. And as a result, they you know, were drug out into the theater and then they said, hey, we're in danger of rioting. And, and basically, uh, you can go read more about that uh, in Scripture. But in Acts chapter 18, we see that Priscilla and Aquila are here in Ephesus. Uh, Timothy is a pastor here. So not an unknown place. Not a surprise then as well that you have a lot of good things happening because you have good leaders that are there. So this reminder that God is walking among them is a good encouragement for them to return to this former zeal that is starting to slip away during this time period. Well, they're commended here in the sense that you cannot bear those who are evil, those you have tested, those who say they are apostles. They were practicing church discipline, something that we don't do much of today, and something that we have to do today. Today I was speaking with kids about homosexuality and how, you know, it's not just homosexuality, but so many things that we have tolerated and begun to become so acquainted with that it seems like no big deal. I was listening to a message where uh, Devin Lambrecht had sent in regards to the temple, or uh, when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. And remember, they had put it on a new cart. And Uz reaches out, touches it and God kills him and you think whoa easy lighten up right I mean there's so much here but one of the things that they highlighted that I think is very similar is that if you look at us we see that this is a guy who grew up with the ark in his home he was so used to it the the special had become every day and maybe it was his familiarity with this that he thought oh I, this is the ark I, I got this I, I, I don't know but sometimes when we become so familiar and so used to having the presence of God in our lives it's not special anymore that's what's happening here and I think that with every one of these churches, you're going to see a certain attitude of a time period. But also, as you're going to see here, it says, he who has an ear, he, let him hear. This is also for you personally. 
It isn't just the time period of Ephesus. It's not just from 33 to 100 AD. It still applies to us here even to this day. And we need to remember not to forget our first love and that we can't let the holy just become mundane. We have a gift that God has given us with His Spirit, the gift of forgiveness, His presence in our lives, and yet it, we can go weeks without really melting in what that means. It just becomes words. It just becomes a fact. And so this is speaking to us in that sense. And he goes on and he says in verse 3, And you have preserved or persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. We have to persevere. We have to not grow weary of the fight. I know for me that's one of the things that I have to fight is to not get tired of the fight. Because it would be so much easier. I can't tell you how many times my wife has told me how much easier it would be not to be married to me. Not that she doesn't love me, but that it's hard to be married to me. If I could just keep my mouth closed, if I could just, you know, calm down a little bit, whatever. Among other probably not so good issues. But... We have to fight that. We are not to grow weary. And this is what he's saying. For my name's sake, you have not become weary. The Bible talks about that for us not to grow weary and grow tired. And that's because we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Another verse that I think of is it says that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in your, in your fight. And... Sometimes that means we need to take a step back from the busyness of life because I'm sure that's what was going on here. A rich city, bustling, busy, all these things going on every day. It would be so much easier just to let it slide. It would be so much easier for you not to go out and vote to keep the sheriff in or whatever the case might be. So much easier. Just let others do it. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired. You see, if your eyes are on Christ, your first love, then that gives you the boldness and the energy to keep moving. So it's natural. We all do it. But that's what's going on here at Ephesus. Verse 4, nevertheless. So they have this commendation. You haven't grown weary. You haven't given up. You are practicing church discipline. You're testing those who say they're Christians, who say they're apostles, and they're not. They're recognizing and testing these people who are coming into the church. And they're saying, no, I'm sorry, you don't belong here. But nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. It's sometimes easy for us as well to... Do the motions, but do it not out of love for Christ, but out of, well, it's what I do. And that's what starts to happen as time goes on. And we need to, to be conscious of that and say, God, just renew that fire in my heart 
for you. Not necessarily for ministry, because sometimes we can fall in love with the act of ministry. You might go on a, a mission trip and come up all fired up because it was fun, it was great, I enjoyed it. Would you be just as fired up, though, if you were beat up on that mission trip? Maybe put in prison for a week? And so, remember why we do what we do. It isn't because, hey, I'm in ministry, it's what I do, or it's what I should do because I, you know, it's my obligation. But to fix your eyes on Jesus and, and think about what he's done for you. Make that real. Go watch The Passion. Okay? Go watch that movie again. If that's what it takes, watch it so that you are reminded of the reality because it's so easy to just become numb to it. And that's what's going on in Ephesus. That's what was going on in this period of 33 to 100 AD. We see people starting to grow tired. They were growing weary. We can't just say, well, I'm not going to do this because I'm doing it out of obligation. We should do it anyway. But we should recognize that our heart is not right in the right spot, and we should do something to correct that. But there is something to be said about doing things when we don't feel it, for sure. As far as this practicing you know, church discipline, testing the, those who say that they are apostles but aren't. Guys, we're, we're right on the heels of Jesus' ascension, and we already have false prophets in, in coming into the church, false apostles. So don't think that just because you go to church that everybody who's there is a Christian. Okay? He warns us there will be wolves in sheep clothing that will sneak in among you. And therefore, we have to test to this day those people who are in the church. Test the pastors. Test me in, in, uh, to the word. Hold me against the word. Because if I teach things that are ungodly against the word of God, you had better be up in my face. That's what they were doing. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many, not just a few, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is one of my things with the name it, claim it type of things that are out there. I, there is a false spirit in the churches today, and just because it makes us feel good, we automatically uh, say, oh, it's the Holy Spirit. No, it isn't. It's man-centered. It's a kundalini spirit. We've talked about that in the past. Romans 5.3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. These guys were enduring hardship, and they were doing it with joy, just as Romans said. Glory in our tribulations. Yet today we do everything to avoid tribulation and trial. Everything. Well, I don't want to be confrontational, so I'm not going to practice church discipline because, well, that's just going to be a problem. We don't need to. Let's just, let's just let it go. But we need to glory in tribulations because it will produce perseverance. It's hard, but it's the best thing. And you will come out stronger on the other side. And that is what these people were doing. 
Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. So repentance isn't just, oh, okay, I'm sorry, and then now you go live your life. There's a response that goes with repentance to do the first works. It says, or else I'm going to come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. I'm going to take your church away unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's going back and he says, but, okay, even though I, I don't, you're kind of falling away a little bit, you do hate the, the practice of the Nicolaitans. That's good. Now, who are these Nicolaitans? We really don't know for sure, but the word Nicolaitans may give us an indication. Laetans comes from where we get the word laity. And Nico is where we get the word Nike from today, this awful company. It is to conquer. In other words, the word Nicolaitans is to conquer laity. And so a lot of people are teaching that these were people who were going after Christians and that they were, they were against the apostles and against those teachers as well. That's just one thought. And it's a possibility, but we just don't know for sure. But it says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So not only are we going to get a characteristic of God, from the one who holds the stars in his hands, but then we also get a promise for the future that you're going to see later on in Revelation. So you're getting something from the beginning and you're going to get pointed to something to the end. You will see the tree of life talked about here, the fulfillment of what he is prophesying here in chapter 22, verse 2. You will see the tree of life and you will be able to eat from that tree of life. So this is a promise that is given to them to encourage them, a reminder, listen, don't forget your first love. Here's the prize. Keep it there. And I think, frankly, the tree of life is, is Jesus as well. Um, just another picture of him. But he, he's just saying, don't lose sight of the goal. And so, what is the solution to the problem that they have? I underlined it there for you. We've talked about it, but he says... Don't forget your first love. So how do you not forget your first love? Repent and do. That's the solution to the problem of this church. Repent and do. Okay? Now, I think that by 100 AD, you're going to see here when we get to the church of Smyrna, which is next here in verse 8, the church was pretty much a mess. And you're going to see that Smyrna from roughly 100 to 300 A.D. And Smyrna, it says this in verse 8, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. They were enduring great persecution. And so the attribute of Christ that, he, that this church gets is, hey, I'm first and last. I was dead. I came to life. You don't need to worry about dying. 
this suffering, this persecution you're going through, don't fret it because I'm still walking among the lampstands. I'm here and I give life. Though you die, you're going to rise again because you know me. And what's neat about that, I love that phone because I always want to look up every time I hear it. It's like, yes! Um, you're born once, you die twice. Or di Yeah, you're born once, you die twice. You're born twice, you die once. In, in essence, that's what he's saying here. You've been born again. And therefore, you're not going to die twice. You, you're only going to die this first death, but it's okay because you're going to live. If you're only born once, then you're going to die the natural death and then eternal death. And so this is kind of what he says, I know I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, Smyrna was only second to Ephesus as far as wealth goes. So very wealthy church. Uh, it was founded by Alexander the Great, actually. Today, it is Ismer in Turkey. Uh, and it was basically 35 miles north of Ephesus, right on the, it was a port city, which is another reason why it was very rich and all of that. Um, you might know it as well as the birthplace of Homer. More, more importantly, the, uh, the bishop that was there in Smyrna was a guy named Polycarp. I've talked about him many times. Polycarp was uh, a man that was martyred for his faith. Uh, tradition has that uh, they tried to light him on fire, burn, the fire went out. Uh, they lit it again, and uh, they had, I don't remember if they stabbed him or, you know, with a spear or whatever, but the blood put out the fire again, and finally the third time was the charm where he burned. But in the meantime, he's, he was basically saying, light the flames, go ahead. I, he's famous basically for saying this, for 80 and 6 years I've served my Lord, and he has never abandoned me. I'm not about to abandon him now, light the flames. That's a paraphrase for the most part, but it's what he said. So this is the kind of guy who lived here in Smyrna. So put him here as you read this and as you see what they're going through. Just like Ephesus had this huge amphitheater, Smyrna has this huge amphitheater uh, of about 20,000 seats. I find these amphitheaters disgusting. It was basically the ancient Hollywood. One of the things I find interesting is the word hypocrite, what hypocrite means. You know, in the days of Smyrna and of Christ, a hypocrite is what they called actors. They were called hypocrites. It was pretending to be somebody you're not. That's what a hypocrite is. And so really Hollywood today is filled with hypocrites in every sense of the word. Um, and these amphitheaters just bred that kind of hypocrisy, just like L.A. does so today. I'm not saying that people can't be actors or anything like that, but I am saying it's a corrupt industry. Always has been, even in these days. And I don't know why, I, but sometimes I wonder 
and don't take this as, as a, a teaching or a diet. This is just Brian Young's strange thoughts sometimes. But, yeah, sometimes <laughs> it makes me wonder if it's dangerous for us to be outside of reality. Um, we live oftentimes in a fantasy world with movies and video games and things like that. And I wonder if sometimes it's dangerous to be outside of reality. I don't know. Myrrh was grown in this area. Uh, and myrrh was used for perfume. Uh, it was an embalming spice. It was an oil that was used for anointing priests. And this is basically where a lot of it was grown and made. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But he goes on here and he says in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. He's talking to the church here. This is a wealthy place, but yet he, the church is very poor. And what you're going to see, the reason for that is because they are being persecuted. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Again, similar to those who call themselves apostles. But remember, what is a true Jew? A true Jew isn't one that was born from Abraham. A true Jew is one who has the faith in Jesus. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Easy to say but again, could be written for us today. Don't fear. My wife for years did not want to even touch the book of Revelation because, well, still she says, because it scared her. Again, if that's what you're getting out of the book of Revelation, you're missing the point. This isn't about fear. This is a revelation of Jesus. You don't need to fear Jesus. And this is what he's saying. A church that is being persecuted, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. In our nice and cozy, warm, fuzzy America, it's hard to kind of stomach that. But you know, there comes a point when the older I get, the more it's like, bring it on. I don't care. I just don't care anymore. Nothing is worth, you can have my home, you can have everything. And this is going to sound terrible, so I'm ready, I'm bracing myself. You can even have my children. I know. My children don't belong to me. If God chooses to take my children, I do not want to hold them as an idol in my hand that I am not willing to give up, that I love my children more than God. And we have to be willing to say, I am willing to give everything up. I'm not saying hand them over to Satan. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying I am willing to give everything up, even for them to be persecuted, if that's what has to happen. 
as long as they stand faithful. Because he's saying, even they don't need to fear. Don't fear it. I'm the first and the last. I was dead. I came to life. What are you guys afraid of? Life? I know that doesn't make any sense to our minds, but that, that's literally what he's saying here. This time period of 100 to 300 A.D. is one of the greatest time periods of Christian persecution ever. Over 6 million Christians were killed during this time period. So this idea of myrrh being produced here in Smyrna is not an accident as well because it was an embalming spice. It was for death. And so this whole message to this church that's being persecuted for this 10-day period, this 10 days also, 10 is a period of uh, testing, and he even talks about you, you may be tested, um, a tribulation for 10 days. Testing by man is often a 10-day thing. Testing by God is a 40-day thing. See, we have 40 days in the... Uh, Jesus was tested for 40 days up there in the... Uh, I can't I think of this word, but anyway. Um, 40 day, uh, years in the, in the desert wandering. Um, but 10, we see like Daniel was tested by man for 10 days. This seems to be a period of testing of, of man's persecution. We talk about... We are going to be protected. Many people believe in a pre-trib rapture because they say we are not going to be under God's wrath. I agree, we will not be under the wrath of God. No way, no how. However, there is a time period of man's testing that you will go through. Not God's wrath, but man's. And there is a difference between those two things. And you're going to have to grasp that concept as we continue further. You're going to see it. But... For us to say that Christians aren't going to suffer is absolutely unbiblical and unrealistic with what we see happening in the world right now. I saw ISIS, you know, behead Christians on the beach. Tell them, don't worry, it's all going to be fine, nobody's going to get hurt. You need to be prepared and be willing to give your life. You need to take this to heart. If you're afraid of death, which is natural, it's okay, I'm not pointing fingers and saying, how dare you, it's natural. But I think we need to study this, meditate on these words of his, and take it to heart. Just study it deeper. Because he's saying, you're not going to be at all, I mean, you're going to be here, and then boom, you're with Jesus, I'm telling you, you're going to say, it was worth it. I'd do it all again. So, important to kind of think about those type of things here as well. Um, Isaiah 60, verse 6 says this, The multitude of camels cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. This is kind of one of the things that we see, you know, that when baby Jesus is born, that there are three wise men that come. Nowhere does it say there are three wise men. We get that because of the gifts that were given. We think gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so there were three gifts, three 
whatever. Well, what's interesting here, gold and frankincense, but in Matthew 2, verse 11, we see myrrh. In Isaiah 60, it is left out. And I think there's a reason for that, because we know gold was for the king, okay, but myrrh was a burial. It was a, a death thing. And so this, I think, is prophetic here in Isaiah 60 of what he's saying. I was, he, he who was dead and came to life. That myrrh was not going to be really needed for Jesus. And that's prophetic here, I think, in Isaiah 60. This is the one church that is not admonished for anything either. I think that's also very interesting because a persecuted church cleanses the church. China has prayed for persecution for the church in America for years. I truly believe that we may see that coming soon. They know, because they've lived through it, that that's what purifies the church. You want to get back to your first love? Bring persecution. Go through trials and tribulations, and you're going to... Like I said before, when a loved one dies, a son, a mother, a spouse, a brother, whoever, you become so close to God, nothing else matters until it wears off. And here's a church that is being persecuted severely through a time period of over 6 million people dying, and yet there is nothing that is saying, you know, hey, you're doing this wrong. Very interesting to me. Now, this word for poor here, where it says you are poor, but, you don't, but you're rich, that word for poor is not just like, you know, short on cash. It is utter poverty. And that's what happens in times of persecution. You got a wealthy town, but you're not going to get any. I think this is, again, very prophetic of end times, that the persecuted church in the end times you will not be able to buy or sell because you will not take the mark of the beast. And so he says, even though you have none of this, you're rich. I'll tell you, the, the happiest people statistically are poor people. Did you know that? Poor people are statistically happier than rich people. Now, I'm not saying rich people can't be happy. I'm not saying that either. Happiness comes from the Lord. But I'll tell you, when I went to India and spoke there, one of the, the biggest take-home thoughts for me was this. Shame on you, Brian. Because I went there, and I remember the first day I got there, and I'm looking at utter poverty, and I'm thinking, how do these people live? I can't imagine. By day three... I was like, wow, these people are neat. I was able to go to a home of a family that that very week their home was burned down. And by home, I mean about an eight by eight mud hut that had some wood doors and things like that. And he escaped through the flames going through. I think I maybe mentioned this before. And the man was telling me what happened with a smile on his face. 
I mean, I had to disguise myself to go into this village for their safety and mine. And they had a smile on their face. I saw people in absolute utter poverty with smiles on their faces. We stopped at this one, one place, this little hut. He's out working on his little farm type thing. And, and he gives me this gift wrapped up in, in newspaper. I thought they were potatoes. They looked just like little potatoes. I didn't know what they were. And I'm like, I don't want to take anything. This man has nothing and he's trying to give me a gift. And it's like, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. And this Christopher, who is kind of my guy there, he says, you got to take it. And I'm like, oh. I felt like I was robbing the poor. But the biggest smile on his face. By day seven, I was saying, shame on you, Brian, that you thought that material possessions would make these people happy. They had nothing, and yet they were so much more rich than I was. Let me tell you, right now we think, oh, we love the stuff that God has blessed us with, but when you lose it all, you're going to be happier because you're going to be focused on nothing but Jesus. You won't have a care in the world. You won't have to worry about getting this done and that done. You're going to be joyful because you are rich. I know that doesn't sound right, but that's what he's saying. You guys, you know, I know you're poor, but you're rich. And they know it. So you contrast this to the last church of Laodicea here, if you look ahead. They're rich, but they don't realize that they're poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. So... When he says, do not fear, you can take that to the bank. And if this is freaking you out a little bit and it does concern you and worry you, then you better get, start getting down on your knees and start praying now. Prepare me, Lord. Prepare my heart for this. Prepare my mind that I don't hang on to these things, these blessings you've given me so tightly because they mean nothing. If your gospel is void of suffering, I think you're missing something. And we need to take that to heart too because the true gospel is not a blab it, grab it theology. It's not a heal everything in the church. What, these people, do they need to sit at home and wonder what did we do wrong? You know, how come God's not blessing me? No, that's not what this is saying. The true gospel church is going to suffer. It's going to have persecution. It will have trials and tribulations, but it's going to have joy because our joy is not bound up in anything but him. Hey, Brian. Yeah. I think the analogy you used with me about the closed fist but hanging on to something so tight. That's and I got that from the Benham brothers. They talked about when God gives us a gift, whatever it is, we should receive everything he gives us with an open hand. And you never clinch around it because God can give and he can take away. That means your children, your spouse, your home, your money, your bank account, your car, whatever it is, your health. If you grab onto that and you try to hang on too tightly, he's going to have to pry it out of your hands and it's going to hurt. He's going to get it either way. You can either willingly let it go without the excess pain or you can grab onto it 
and he's going to have to pry your fingers to take it. Everything we have, we should receive with an open hand, realizing it never belongs to us to begin with, that we have it on borrowed time. Our children are a gift that we have from God on borrowed time. Someday when he wants to take them, thank you, Jesus, for the time you've given me. Doesn't mean I'm not going to weep and, and, and have sorrow. It's okay. You can do that. But we can't hang on to things you know, too tightly. 1 Peter 4.1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I love that verse. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin, NIV says. And yet, we run away from suffering. I get it, nobody wants to do it. I'm not going to run to it, but when it does happen, we should take it with thanksgiving. We should take it like polycarp. Eighty and six years, the Lord has never let me down. Light the flames. Means nothing. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6 You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy. Received affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. You will not be able to do this on your own. That's why I say if you're fearful right now, then you need to be going and seeking that treasure. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying seek that Holy Spirit. Seek the peace of God because there will be affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.19, For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering, wrongfully. If somebody's going to wrongfully persecute you, which very well could happen, it's commendable before God. Remember that. Okay, there's a blessing in it. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, test you in all these things. I won't read it all again, but... Um, these Jews who oppose the church. Remember what Jesus called those Jews? Your father, the devil. Okay. As I said, 10 is a matter of uh, human testing. Nabal. Remember David? Nabal wouldn't give him any food, so uh, Nabal died after 10 days, which is kind of interesting there as well. Um, 40 days we have, they spied out the land for 40 days. Um, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Some people think that this 10 days that he talks about here, that he's, they're going to suffer for these 10 days, is going to be 10 waves of persecution that take place from the time of Nero to the time of Diocletian in this time period. And there were 10 waves, 10 different periods of persecution that take place and they think that maybe this is what that's talking about i don't know and then that second death is going to be in chapter 20 verse 6 we will see what the second death is we're not going to jump there right now you can look if you want to get a sneak peek but we'll talk about it more later but uh we often hear about the persecution of nero but the persecution under diocletian was even worse yet Verse 12, to the angel in the church in Pergamos, write these things, say he who is the sharp two-edged sword. 
I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Pergamos is interesting here. Pergamos, we're going to see about 300 to 500 A.D., what we see in that time period is a mixing of church and state, a mixing of pagan and Christian. This is the time Constantine comes around. We get rid of all the biblical festivals. We replace them with pagan holidays. This is the time period we see the Catholic Church starting to grow. We get uh, all kinds of uh, just bad doctrines creeping into the church. The word Pergamos is interesting as well for what's going on here in this church, as well as through this time period of history. Pergamum, it literally means an objectionable marriage. A marriage of church and state, a mixing together, it's not supposed to be that way. And he says, I know your works where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. There was a a statue of Zeus there. The foundation has been found in archaeology. They say that it was 150 feet tall. And th this is the kind of world that these people are living in. And it can get worse. Um, this time period of Constantine, there's disagreements and arguments out there. Was he really a believer or not? I don't know. I do know this, though, as far as I'm concerned. He, at the very least, was a compromised Christian. He had his coins that still said uh, Sol Invictus Mithras to the, un the, the unconquerable sun god, Mithras. I think that he was basically uniting the kingdom and trying to have a foot in both worlds, personally. And... <clears throat> in so doing, had married church and state. He forced his uh, soldiers to get baptized. Um, the, the reason all of this happened is he was going out to war and he saw a vision of a cross in the sky and it basically said, under this sign you will conquer or something like that. He heard a voice or something, a vision. And so under the sign of the cross, he, was, he united Rome. So that's what ends up happening here with Constantine. Um, the state religion really began to look basically more like Rome, though, than it did like Christ. Easter, Christmas, these are things the pagans were very, very familiar with. And that's what I mean. It looked more like Rome. Um, Pergamum is the farthest northern uh, church that we're going to see. It has a huge library as well of about 200,000 volumes, they say. Um, the other thing is you get the word papyrus, uh, or not just the word, but papyrus came from Pergamum, which is one of the reasons they had such a large volume of uh, books there in the library is because papyrus is used for paper. This is what they would write on, and so you had all these parchments there at Pergamum. And it does seem to fit that wherever we have such worldly wisdom, the intellectuals, they're the ones that start falling away from the Lord. Not to say that there aren't intellectual Christians. There are. They're geniuses, brilliant. But when we don't have God as our foundation and worldview of how we look at wisdom, 
then it becomes foolishness. Um, we also had the god Asclepius here, also at Ephesus too, but uh, a big one of Asclepius, that is the uh, snake wrapped around a pole that we see on our ambulances to this day. That was a big port, uh, part of the worship here at Pergamos. And it was on their coins, the symbol of that was on their coins, and it was a, a healing god. The attribute that's given here, okay, here we're seeing a church where there is a mixture taking place. And so what is the attribute God gives? The sharp two-edged sword. What is, we're seeing a, an ungodly union taking place, and what does a sharp double-edged sword do? Divides. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. I can't say sword. Sharp, sharp enough to penetrate between bone and marrow. Okay, soul and spirit. And so the word of God is dividing this union. And so it's a reminder of that. Saying, listen, you guys are mixing. You're uniting with the world, but I hold the double-edged sword. So that attribute is very fitting to this church. Um, we don't really know who this Antipas is. Uh, let me just kind of focus on that here. Satan's throne might be the statue of Zeus, might be in reference to that a little bit, uh, because Zeus is kind of the chief deity of paganism. So maybe that's kind of why it's here, but nonetheless, this is what is the center of worship of Zeus is here in Pergamum. And so that might be why he says where Satan has his throne. Um, Alexander Hislop describes in his book, Two Babylons, how the pagan priests at Babylon, when Babylon fell, they moved to Pergamum. And so they brought a lot of their Babylonian Satanism, basically, to Pergamum here during the reign of Belshazzar, at least according to Alexander Hislop. So that's some of the things there. Um, Antipas here, we don't know much about him outside of he was martyred. And he just says, listen, your encouragement for some of that is hold fast to my name. Don't deny the faith. I have the double-edged sword. I still will penetrate between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, but I, I hold that power. And so there's an encouragement in it as well. Verse 14, I'm going to kind of start flying through because I'm running late. Uh, but I have a few things against you because you have those there that hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality find those very interesting things here. The very same things that we talked when we went through the book of Galatians, that the book of Acts talks about for a New Testament church to avoid, are mentioned here in Revelation again. Sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols. And here it's being brought up in Revelation, which I think is also prophetic of end times. Unlike Smyrna and Ephesus, Pergamum was not able to test and keep out false prophets and teachers. They've let them in. They're, they're holding to the doctrine of Balaam. 
What's the doctrine of Balaam? You know the story of Balaam. This guy, he tried to curse the Israelites. He couldn't. He could only bless them. And so since he couldn't curse them, he says, I can't curse them, but I can get them to curse themselves. Here's what you do. Go get your pretty women. Bring them into town. They'll start sleeping with your women, and they'll curse themselves. Sexual immorality was the doctrine of Balaam. They departed from the word of God, this mixing, and they started getting into these pagan things that were brought into the church. Well, Balaam was rebuked by a donkey, a beast without speech, yet spoke with a man's voice, and that donkey restrained the prophet. That's what 2 Peter 2 says in verses 15 and 16. This is the kind of thing that's going on here. And he says, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, those who apparently were going probably after those who were holding to the true faith. He's going after them. Those that were kind of compromised Christians will leave alone. But the true believers you'll go after because there's a compromised state here. And he says, you repent. If you don't repent, I'm coming after you and I'm going to fight with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword? The word of God. The word is going to test your works. The word will test what you're doing if it's right or wrong. Not culture. Not what you grew up with. Not your church doctrine. The word of God. Now, some church doctrine is based on the word of God, so don't take me wrong, but you know what I'm saying. There's plenty of it that isn't. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Hidden manna. We know what manna is, right? Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Gets a new name and a white stone. We talked about, I think we did, didn't we talk about that white stone before? taking you all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and the manna also was white, so there's a connection with that white here, both of them being a picture of Jesus, and then this new name. Um, John 6 shows us that Jesus himself is that hidden manna. I'm not going to read that for the sake of time, but you can go and read that on your own. But the white stone I want to focus on a little bit more, and then we're going to close here. In Isaiah 62, verse 2, The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. This isn't just new to Revelation. This has already been prophesied that you're going to have a new name. It's just telling us here it's going to be written on that white stone. And to his servants he will give another name, Isaiah 65. Luke 2, On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. It's interesting that God gives new names with his covenant. Abraham was Abram until the covenant was given. Isaac becomes, uh, or Jacob becomes Israel, right? Sarai became Sarah. We see all of this new name because a name defines us. God defines us in our name, in a sense. Well, when you were baptized, 
here or circumcised on the eighth day, that is when the Jews named you. They waited until that day of circumcision on the eighth day. So, when we're baptized, we're baptized into the name of the Trinity. I think, uh, you know, it says Matthew 28, 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, at baptism, with this covenant in a sense, you, you receive a new name. Now, there's faith and all of that that goes in this too. I, I, I understand that, but just for the, the picture that we're seeing here. But this is why officially Jews don't give their name their baby's name, until the eighth day. Because that is when the covenant, the covenant, it was a picture of the covenant, was circumcision. Jesus says that. As a sign of the covenant, you are to get circumcised on eight days. And that's why then, because you get a new name with the new covenant, or when the covenant comes, that they would name their children at eight days. And this is what we see here in Luke. That Jesus was not given his name until that time. I just find that interesting. Deuteronomy 8 says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your forefathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Matthew 4, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It was generally understood by the Jewish sages that here in Deuteronomy that it was speaking of the Messiah. They knew that before we did. Before Jesus even came, they believed that that was speaking of the Messiah. I find that amazing. The word here in Hebrew for the man in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 um, where it says that man does not live on bread alone. It literally says the man. And because of that, that was kind of a red flag for them and saying there's more to that than what you're seeing on the surface. And so they say that Moses was saying that the Messiah would not live on bread alone, but on everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And he did. He says, I do nothing on my own. I only do what my father, what I see my father doing, what he tells me to do. And that's an example for us. And so this truth was understood by the Jewish sages and I think is even reflected by Jesus himself when he said that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. In John chapter 8, he says that. So we're going to stop there tonight. I've gone long already. I was hoping to get through the first four churches, but I was long-winded apparently.